Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Summer is meant to be a little quieter in the world of politics, so surely the last two weeks of August would be a good time to take a few days off our podcast? Wrong. An awful lot has happened in the last fortnight, and we're back in the virtual studio to make sense of it all. We saw the appointment of the new cabinet secretary, who at 41 is the youngest in over a century. Who is Simon Case? Why has he got the job? What will he need to do? Then there was the fiasco over the exam results, just the latest in government education policy since the lockdown, and that led to the departure of both the permanent secretary at the Department for Education and the head of Ofqual, the exams regulator. But Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, is still in place. What does this say about accountability and the relationship between minister and his civil servants? And as schools reopen and ministers urge people to return to their offices, we'll take a look back at government decision-making in the first phase of the pandemic. We've published a new IFG report out this week, which explores the mistakes and successes and what needs to be done to get things right this autumn. Joining me in the studio today is a terrific lineup, Alex Thomas, who leads the IFG civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. And Kath Haddon's joining us. Uh, she heads up our minister's programme, as well as all things constitutional. Great to have you with us, Kath. Thanks. Great to be back. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Chris Wilkins, a former number 10 director of strategy, special advisor at the Department for Education and now managing partner at strategy consultants, Audley. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Hi, Bronwyn. Let's start with a case for case, if you like, the appointment of the cabinet secretary. Simon Case was working as Prince William's private secretary when the prime minister coaxed him back into government with a post of number 10 permanent secretary earlier this year. And the line was always that this was going to be a short-term secondment and that Case would be heading back to Kensington Palace sooner rather than later. In fact, that was the line appearing in the papers just a few weeks ago. And then he's been named as the new cabinet secretary. Alex, you worked with him. What do you think changed his mind? I think in the end, uh, when the prime minister asks, it's very hard to say no. If uh, if the PM was set on uh, Simon Case taking the the job, then uh, you know, of course, he could have turned it down. But it gets it gets pretty difficult with um uh, with with a sort of appeal to your uh, uh, your sense of of duty. So I suspect that was. Part of it. I, I also think, um, you know, uh, to, to coin a phrase that uh, the prime ministers use, when the when the ball comes loose from the scrum, uh, it's uh, it's very tempting uh, to go for it. So it's not a surprise that Simon uh, is cabinet secretary. It is more of a surprise that he's got the job uh, now. Um, I think uh, even he probably uh, would have uh, expected it to uh, to uh, to uh, come for him uh, later in his uh, career. But I think when the when the prime minister asks, it's it's hard to say uh, no and obviously Simon is an ambitious person and uh, also is uh, you know keen, keen to serve so uh, I suspect that was the, that was his calculation but there were at least three other contenders from the very senior levels of the civil service so it is fairly clear the prime minister you know wanted Simon case what are the problems that he might face it's not just that people are going around saying he's 41 and it's the first time in a century someone's so young and, and and so on but um that that he hasn't in the way that some of the other contenders have done, run a big department, has he? And I think you hint with the uh, uh, your your point there about the recruitment. You hint at one of the big challenges for him early on, which is uh, asserting his authority with the other permanent secretaries. There is, you know, the the, the recruitment process has been a little bit um, mysterious. Um, uh, the the um, when when Mark Sedwell stepped down, uh, it was opened up to former and serving permanent secretaries. It didn't appear that Simon Case was someone who'd put his name forward. There were other names in the frame, and then they've sort of come come and gone. So um, so there is a 
a sort of slight um, uh, question around that uh, recruitment. And uh, uh, what Simon will have to do is assert himself over uh, those uh, his his colleagues. And as you say, many of them have run big departments. Simon hasn't. Uh, others. Uh, uh, have lots of experience and expertise in the economic uh, sphere where Simon doesn't. Simon uh, has made his career through Number 10 and the Cabinet Office and to some extent in the security uh, services. So he's uh, he's not he's not run a, a, a big uh, department. Um, I think the uh, other thing that he will uh, need to uh, do is demonstrate, as uh, you know, I wrote and, and, and you've been saying as well, Bronwyn, that he's uh, able to stand up for the civil service. There's no question in anybody's mind that he's uh, the prime minister's man. He was, you know, he was Theresa May's man before that, and David Cameron's man before that. So that's that's all well and good. But he needs to demonstrate to uh, uh, the civil service that he can lead this organisation of over four hundred thousand people, and that when it comes to it, he can uh, he can stand up for them as a as as, as is appropriate. No, thanks for that. Cass, you did your PhD with Simon. He's a historian like you. Is that helpful? Well, it is in terms of a lot of the sort of core aspects of the role. You know, he's steeped in the constitutional history, the, the background of cabinet secretaries, you know, the running of the centre, all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of the core elements of what a cabinet secretary does in and around the prime minister and in terms of managing the, the process of cabinet and fixing problems across Whitehall. You know, he's got long experience in that and and he knows his stuff. Alex has hinted at at, or has touched on many of the problems that he might face. Um, I mean, in terms of his, you know, age and experience, I think absolutely he's, you know, he's going to grow into this role. So it'll be interesting to see, A, how long he stays. He's got a five-year contract, but also where he is in a year or so. It's going to be, I'm sure, a bumpy year getting into the job. And even Jeremy Hayward, who was more experienced when he came to the job, you know, he grew into it quite a lot. But the other issue about his age is that for most cabinet secretaries, it's their last job in the civil service. And it's a really interesting question. If you've been cabinet secretary, where do you go on for, for you know, after that? And how does that affect the way in which you do the job. A lot of former cabinet secretaries, they still retire in their 50s and go on, you know, to do plenty of things in the private sector, the charity sector, go to the House of Lords. Um, Oxbridge Colleges. Yes, Oxbridge (laughs) Colleges. You know, there's plenty of options out there, but it does slightly change that dynamic when you've got somebody who's, you know, right in the middle of their career in the civil service rather than, you know, coming to the end and therefore, you know, how that affects their willingness to sort of stand up in in difficult times. You mean mean that he might be less willing to stand up because he's he's looking at something after this, whereas other people um, would say, well, look, I've got nothing left to lose. This is my last job. I've really reached the summit of my career. I'm going to say what I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue. I think in Simon's case, um, you know, he won't be affected by by um, that in his own mind. The question is whether or not when things are really difficult, you know, he's been used to sort of building his career. Um, and do you get to a point that, that Mark Sedwell apparently got to where um, you are being faced with a prime minister saying, you know, do it my way or maybe it's the end of your the line for you here? And what do you do in those kind of circumstances? I mean, Simon will be a long way off of any such circumstances, but we have seen too much of that in recent weeks and months with permanent secretaries and cabinet secretaries falling out with the government. So, you know, it's something that um, we have to consider and that, you know, you hope that Simon thinks about as he he's sort of contemplating the, the, the change in his role. Chris, you worked with him when you were in number 10. How did you find him? Yes, I mean, I have to agree with 
Alex, it's not a surprise to me that Simon is now the Cabinet Secretary, uh, though it may have come sooner than, than one might have imagined. Uh, I think he had all the makings of a Cabinet Secretary when I worked with him. He was very political with a small p in terms of being able to spot uh, sort of ele- elephant traps and things like that and being able to advise the Prime Minister accordingly. But the main thing about Simon, I think, is he brings an extraordinary level of calm to any situation. And sometimes, you know, as we know, you, ne- you need that in government when the crises are happening, when people are sometimes running around uh, with their hair on fire and, and you know, everything's boiling over. Uh, he's an incredibly sort of calm character um, and commands authority and speaks with experience that uh, uh, maybe sort of slightly uh, belies his his years. So I can see why he uh, has sort of been appointed. The only thing I'd say is that some of the coverage has suggested, you know, he's very much an ally of Boris Johnson and, and things like this. And, and some of that coverage has almost been slightly derogatory in a sense as suggesting that he was going to be some sort of sort of patsy for the prime minister or the government. And I, and I really don't think that is the case at all from my experience of him. I can see why they, they might think uh, he might be that, but I don't think he will. Uh, he's, a, he's a very smart operator. Yeah. Uh, well, and obviously uh, it hasn't been a quiet year for the monarchy, and I've been struck in my conversations with him particularly about the monarchy and so on. He's capable of taking the thousand-year view, but he is really going to be in, in the thick of it um, with even more going on than was going on on the, the various ups and downs of the royal family. I, I want to come to this point that you've all been touching on, which is what the authority of the cabinet secretary is um, and, and his ability to get things done in, in, in Whitehall. I mean, Alex, how would you describe that? His authority derives from the confidence of the prime minister. And that's why, you know, uh, there are lots of pros and cons you can say about the appointment. But in the end, I feel, uh, you know, reasonably optimistic about it because Simon passes that first absolutely critical test. So uh, if you want to be able to assert your authority over the system, that needs to come from the Prime Minister. You know, the the, uh, the civil service doesn't have some sort of abstract authority of it of itself. It it, it derives from uh, the government. What Simon will then need to do is, um, you know, use that and build it over time. I mean, one of the things I was thinking, just listening to Kath and, and Chris, and and it was something I saw Jeremy Hayward do brilliantly is pick your battles. So. Um, uh, Simon will need to, and he has a lot of credibility with the Prime Minister, but he'll need to maintain that and with uh, the the PM's uh, advisers by demonstrating that he can get stuff done for them. But then he needs to spend that capital when he thinks that the PM or, or, or Number 10 is going off kilter or that there are propriety questions or other sort of constitutional questions that, are, uh, that, that, that uh, need, need to be addressed and where he needs to put his foot down. So it's about sort of accumulating and spending capital, if I can put it that way, and, and using that. And it's why I think it's good that the cabinet secretary job has not been separated off from the head of the civil service job because you need to be able to mix the two of those together so that you can build capital in one and spend it in another if i can put it uh, that way the other really interesting thing just just finally is is how simon will choose to use the uh, the sort of power or influence he has over appointments and the appointments that he makes the the big permanent secretary jobs coming up but also influence over directors general and other senior civil servants and wider um, public appointments i'm sure uh, simon will recognize that as a source of authority and and uh, influence, and he'll want to uh, use that uh, to um, to kind of consolidate his position, but also get stuff done for the prime minister and, and the wider government. Okay, Chris, do you think? I mean, in, in terms of the big flanks of the government's coronavirus response—health, education, the treasury—if you like—is he going to help get things done? The first two of those have been the problem. 
Yes, and I think he will um, be able to sort of get hold of some of those things. He's obviously been already uh, steeped in the coronavirus uh, response. Um, but he is, as we said earlier, more uh, of a sort of domestic focus in that sense. He doesn't have the treasury background of sort of previous cabinet secretaries, and that might be uh, an interesting to see how he deals with that. But he does have a good grip, I think, of domestic policy and the domestic uh, agenda. Um, so I think... What we'll see is him go about it sort of quietly behind the scenes. It's interesting, the Cabinet Secretary is obviously a much sort of more high-profile job, um, but I imagine we won't see that much of him. He'll try to carry on quietly behind the scenes, uh, helping to deliver the government's uh, agenda, and that's really, I think, where he's most uh, effective in my experience. Kath, last thought? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think just one word on what Alex was saying about having the confidence of the Prime Minister. Actually, the key is not just having, you know, that authority from the Prime Minister to assert across Whitehall. It's having the Prime Minister's confidence in your own authority. You mm-hmm. need to be respected as an authoritative civil servant, the top civil servant, so that when you are telling the Prime Minister you can't do this, maybe we should think about another way, let's look at options, whatever it might be, he respects you and isn't just saying we'll do it my way or the highway Um, and and that I think Simon has brought with him into the job Um, I think he you know does know very well how to try and maintain that and I think he's got that as well across Whitehall and that's one of the things that again is why I'm um, optimistic about how he'll grow into this role. Okay, well, with that, let's take a a step sideways, not very far, um, to the second flank of big changes, which is at the Department for Education and the upheavals there in the past week. When Jonathan Slater announced his departure from the civil service last week, he became the fifth permanent secretary to depart in the last six months. And that follows the government's attempts, not very successful, to get children back to school in June and the U-turn over exam results and and, uh, the mess over university admissions. His exit, of course, followed that of Sally Collier as chief regulator of Ofqual. But Gavin Williamson remains in post as Secretary of State for Education. Kath, uh, this raises big questions about ministerial accountability, doesn't it? It does. Um, And there's no getting away from that at the moment. I mean, you've got obviously the big question, which is always a political question in the end. It's down to the Prime Minister of should Gavin Williamson have gone? Bromwyn, you argued that he should have done. And, and, you know, there is a very long list of reasons why that is the case. But the real issue in terms of ministerial responsibility is that others have gone. And those are officials who don't have the same ability to answer publicly about what went on to sort of set out their own case to defend themselves effectively in public. And that's the reason why we have this doctrine of ministerial responsibility, the idea that the elected politicians are the ones who uh, talk to tell Parliament what happened and in the end answer for what goes on in their departments. I mean, this isn't necessarily new stuff. We saw in 1996 the then head of the prison service sacked by Michael Howard. Um, and that was, again, talking about ministerial responsibility. Do you put officials in the frame? But the issue here is it's been, you know, so much placed at the feet of officials in a very difficult position. And without these sort of, you know, at the moment, full answers from what the Secretary of State did know, what he decided, why he decided. Um, you know, we may see in the coming weeks him answering to Parliament and actually getting a bit more on that. Alex, what do we actually know about what went wrong? Well, there's quite a lot of um, 
he said, she said, he said uh, going on. And I'm sure more about this will come out over time, whether sort of officially or um, informally through the media and elsewhere. So there, there will be more. It's very, very hard to tell, despite the evidence that the Ofqual um, uh, officials gave yesterday, exactly who said what and when. But my view is the root of what went wrong goes uh, back to Ofqual's remit. And if you look, I was looking at the legislation that set it up in 2009, and then it was amended a couple of years later. Absolutely running through that remit is consistency of exams and standards. And uh, you would expect, therefore, and certainly in my experience, when you talk to a regulator, they infuriatingly always stick to their remit. Uh, and actually, in this case, Gavin Williamson reinforced that remit. He wrote to Ofqual several times over the, you know, early on in the pandemic and then later on, reinforcing the importance of standards. So all the way through this, everybody had in their minds consistency and standards, and nobody said uh, look, hang on, this is politically unfeasible. And in the end, my view, and uh, you know, I think uh, from from what you said, Bronwyn, yours yours too. That's that's the Secretary of State's job is to shake that up to say, hang on, this is completely unsustainable. We need to um, we need to am- am- amend this. But I think a lot of the the sort of original sin of this comes back to an over focus on Ofqual's remit on standards and consistency. Yeah, and, and then things that appear to have come from the Prime Minister, like saying, oh, look, I want all kids back in school uh, in school at the beginning of June. But social distancing as well, and um, not enough attention paid to the difficulty of reckon the impossibility sometimes of reconciling those two things. It seems to me, um, Chris, tell me you, you worked in the Department for Education. How would you go about this question of the responsibility uh, of, of an agency like Ofqual and the department, and the kind of um, you know responsibility for what comes out at the end? Um, well, it, it does seem incredible as I look at this and think of my time at the department as, as a special advisor there, that somehow a system was designed that inevitably led to a result where effectively private school children were, were advantaged over um, bright children in disadvantaged areas. And, and I left wondering how on earth that, that can get through a system that includes off-qual, that includes officials, that includes... Uh, special advisors and includes ministers. Uh, it just seems remarkable that at no point in that process did anybody sort of pick up on that sort of pretty devastating fact. And, and they, I understand they, they, they seem to. I mean, you put it you put it very well. They seem to have. I mean, there's the problems with the algorithm that Ofqual adopted. Um, by all accounts, the best of algorithms, given the constraints that they found. The problems of, of it doing exactly what you've just described of, of um, holding back. Uh, bright kids from from um, less well achieving schools and schools that that might not have been doing very well but were improving two groups of people you really want to help um, that those problems were evident really a couple of months before the results day yeah. completely and, and uh, understand it I, I believe officials in the department were briefed on um, focus group work that have been done as well that that pointed out that this was going to be the the greatest. Uh, challenge was that people, the public didn't understand that this was what was coming uh, and that they either had to change course or communicate better and and nothing was done in response. So it does feel like to me there were failings at every point of of the system and I understand the point about the Secretary of State being at the top of that but we really need, it seems to me, a much wider view of of how on earth this was able to happen at at all points. But but to the point about Ofqua, I mean it's absolutely right as uh, Alex says about what the original remit of, of Ofqual was. 
point is that their original remit really is all about standards. And what you have in the Department of Education is a department that for you know, a decade really has had at its core um, one thing, which was about dealing with grade inflation and what the government, when it came in um, many years ago, saw as this burgeoning problem of grades being inflated. And so when they were then faced this year with a system where exams were not being sat, that was put at the heart of the response. How do we make sure that in this year we continue to deal with grade inflation and we don't let that get out of control? And the moment you make that your standard, you slightly inevitably, I think, um, end up um, where, where we did. And what happens now, do you think? What's the process of, of finding out what happened and uh, and getting the department to run itself better? We still don't know whether there are going to be exams at the end of this year. We still don't know. I mean, firstly, just thinking politically, it seems to me that uh, the government should make a clear decision now about uh, the process for exams next year. One of the things about this process was that um, it was pretty obvious on the Tuesday before the results came out on the Thursday that the government was going to have to U-turn and adopt what had happened in Scotland. Um, and the failure to make that decision then made the problem worse. So I think quick action now from the government in terms of determining what's going to happen next year is important and a clear signal about that and clarity for, for the students. Um, but I do think it would be worth, um, you know, not, not a big review, but some sort of inquiry into how we ended up um, where we did um, so that we can learn the lessons, um, because it does seem, as I say, remarkable that this made it all the way through the system without anybody at some point putting their hand up and saying, this is going to go wrong, we need to change course. I think, I mean, that for me is what's going to be interesting about what happens next. You probably will see much slower decisions because I would expect that number 10 are now taking a very close look at all of this. Gavin Williamson is still in place, but he is probably on special measures, um, you know, to make sure that he, everything that he is doing is not going to create an even greater political crisis. I mean, I think Boris Johnson was on holiday when this was all taking off. So you've got to wonder at what point did he sort of step in and say, what are you doing? You know, how involved was he in the U-turn? Um, all of these sorts of questions and how involved does he want to be now um, in terms of any future decisions that the Department for Education is having to make? Because we've still got all of these issues about schools going back, mask wearing, attendance levels, you know, and what happens when you start to get hotspots that focus on particular schools or in their area. And I can guarantee it will be top of the list for an incoming permanent secretary to work out uh, what happened and to make sure it isn't isn't um, uh, it doesn't doesn't happen again. In fact, I, I suspect. I mean, interestingly, Susan Ackland Hood was appointed a second permanent secretary at, at DFE uh, about a week before uh, all of this happened. She was head of the court service before, and so she's got she's got lots of experience in the treasury, in uh, kind of the the sort of delivery and operational side as well. So I'm I'm sure she will be uh, kind of trawling through all of this and working out what actually happened and making sure it doesn't happen again uh, if 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 there's another crisis in dfe i suspect it will be in a in a different area um as so often in these things you know you fix the last uh, the last battle and then uh, uh, a new problem comes onto the horizon let's turn to our third subject and the decisions that were made across a range of areas during the first phase of the pandemic and we've got a new ifg report out this week which looks at all the, uh, the government's performance over those decisions. And it's fair to say that the scorecard is pretty mixed. I'm delighted to be joined now by Sarah Nixon, who, along with Alex here, co-wrote the report. Sarah, hi. 
Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, thanks for joining us from Australia. It's just remote working at its very best. Yeah, at its most extreme. <laughs> what's, what's the key finding of the report? Yeah, look, we um, looked at three key decisions made in the early phase of the crisis. We looked at the economic support measures, including the furlough, the lockdown, and the decision to commit to um, 100,000 tests per day by the end of April. And as you say, Bronwyn, we found a really mixed report card. The economic support measures were rolled out incredibly quickly and with remarkably few problems, which we argue reflects the quality of that decision-making process. On testing, we found that setting that objective did drive capacity, which was much needed, but it also drove gaining behaviour, like running tests that were completely medically unnecessary just to meet that target. And on the lockdown, one of the things we really looked at was why decisions were taken when they were and not sooner. And what we argue in the report was that it was a combination of delays in getting the data that told decision makers just how far advanced the pandemic was, along with ministers waiting for SAGE to tell them that the NHS was about to be overwhelmed. Okay, that's great. I'm going to come back to some of those points as well, including the what went right uh, in, the, in the Treasury. But the, the report zeroes in on the role of SAGE, uh, the, the scientific advisors. Uh, Alex, what was the problem here? So it, it, it's we were we all got very very used and still to that mantra about following the science uh, and uh, the, the the work that we did shows um, almost shows the hollowness of that to an extent because uh, what science are you following what about where there are disagreements and what about where there are gaps in the evidence so uh, casting our minds back to uh, February March uh, April time um, uh, one of the things we found about sage and minister's relationship with sage is that follow the science mantra doesn't work when um uh, when uh, there are lots of evidence gaps and actually a structure like sage which will tend to discuss the evidence and um, debate it and where ministers are looking for certainty when you're taking these epic decisions about lockdown shutting the economy down um, isn't conducive to fast decision making so there isn't a sort of silver bullet, you should have done X or you should have done Y, but certainly ministers desire to uh, to, to sort of uh, hide behind, if you like, that um, sage structure meant that it was harder for them to take those early decisions to lock down, which we, we, we now see should have been taken uh, a little bit sooner. And Sarah, you were talking about um, the, 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 the quality of the decisions on some of the economic uh, measures, um, which could have gone wrong. Um, uh, and yet a, a lot of money uh, was made available to businesses and to, to individuals, including through uh, through benefits, very, very quickly. What went right there? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, Bronwyn. It involved government IT, uh, no, government IT project, which, as we all know, they don't always go to plan. But really, on the economic support measures, there are two things that stand out to me. First, that ministers and officials were really willing to talk to business and worker representatives about what was going to work and work quickly. And the second thing I think they, they did really well was they had a laser-like focus on making sure that the plans that they had on paper could be easily transferred and delivered in reality. Um, and that's another thing that government has not always done well in the past, but did this time. One of the things that um, uh, the economic uh, work in particular um, made me think of is that is that you don't uh, decision making doesn't have to be worse just because it's under immense pressure and immense speed. Actually, some of the um, behaviours of Treasury that anyone who's worked in government will be familiar with, some of the sort of uh, ego, the secrecy, the um, kind of uh, 
um, uh, closeness of those decisions were completely blown away. They 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 got in the unions, they got in businesses, they had um, HMRC uh, who were administrating a lot of this, and the Department of Work and Pensions in the room. Uh, and 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 actually, we think the decisions were better than they might have been otherwise. And, and there are lessons there um, uh, for for future um, crises. That, that's that's really interesting, Chris. What do you make of it? I mean, every government gets decisions wrong; it makes mistakes. Given the scale of what this one was was dealing with. Um, um, how, how do you how do you calibrate um, what our response should be? Yes, I mean I, I certainly don't uh, envy my successors with what they've had to to deal with. I think um, two things. I mean, firstly, good strategy is really about the question you ask. It's about getting that question right. And uh, it, just looking back now, it seems to me that we didn't, as a country, particularly ask the question about how do we stop this virus in its tracks, how do we stop it spreading? What we asked at the outset was how how do we sort of manage it as it spreads? Uh, and that's where the language about protect the NHS came from and save lives. That reflects, I think, uh, a lack of preparedness in the first place, uh, maybe a lack of sort of foresight um, going into this so that when the virus struck, we were very much sort of scrabbling to, to catch up rather than implementing um, some kind of plan that had been already developed where other countries said how do we stop it in its tracks we, we simply didn't ask that question it was all about managing it but I think the, the other thing is that the point that's been made about this language of following the science and holding science up as something that's going to give you the definitive answer but of course that's not how science works and I know we, we were just talking about the, the education issue well when ministers were grappling with the whole issue of whether they should be closing schools or not you know, they were looking to Sage and to the scientists to, to sort of give them the definitive answer to that. What, what is the truth of what this, what the impact this virus has on children, etc.? And they were frustrated that they couldn't get, you know, a, a definitive answer from the scientists. And um, but that's because that's not how science works, and that's when ministers do need to make decisions. So again, by holding science up as following the science was a good line politically, and I think it's sort of something that focus grouped very well. But actually, as a driver of uh, policy and decision making it, it maybe wasn't the most effective on chris's first point there uh, we sarah and i were very struck by the the power of the objective in one sense this is a bit of a truism but if you look at what the government's objectives were in the three areas we looked at protect the nhs tick achieved um it uh, uh, it was protected uh, the nhs was not overwhelmed uh, do whatever it takes i mean i think you can argue about that but but tick achieved in the short term at least the um the the, the various treasury schemes were successful a hundred thousand tests okay you know a bit of gaming and a bit of um uh, dodginess around the stats but tick achieved but that still didn't uh, achieve overall what the government wanted to it still uh, meant that we ended up having one of the higher death rates across um europe which goes to chris's first point about about strategy so it's the sort of power of objective but goodness the object- objective has to be the right that, one. that's interesting that they really met their targets i mean Catherine, you're listening to all this uh and we're obviously some way off the inquiry that the government has now agreed uh, should mm. be held what what do you what do you deduce from this alex has just described you know eloquently as the report does uh that the government set targets in its in in strict terms met them and yet missed the main thing it was trying to do of control the disease yeah, I mean, one of the hardest thing that any inquiry has to do is sort of make a judgment of how it um, takes a view on what the government did at the time on the basis of what was possible, what they could have done. It's almost how much sympathy do you give to the government for the, you know, the lack of any information? There was very little 
um, sort of robust science on this. We were all learning about this disease, you know, and still are, you know, so many questions that still exist about it. And also the fact that, you know, you're in crisis scenario. You've it, the, the scale of what they were having to deal with was colossal. And, you, yeah. you know, had Jeremy Hunt yesterday basically saying he almost didn't want the job. So it's a you really interesting Some people think he didn't of, want it at the time. but <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's a really interesting question of, of, you know, how can you judge them and what they could have done better with the tools that they had available, with the information they had available, and in terms of their own skill set. And I think that's going to be the really difficult question to answer is how much does it come down to these sets of ministers, this prime minister, the experience they had or didn't have within governments, the confidence they had when, you know, the science wasn't clear, when there were disagreements and so forth. And the clarity with which they were able to sort of take positions, change them when need be, hold on to them in the face of, you know, a very confused, worried public, a very volatile media and so forth. And and I think that question is going to be one that not only the inquiry, but historians for many years to come are going to be grappling with. I, I think there's something important to add. And Kathy, you kind of picked up on this as well, but it's easy to overlook just the conditions under which these decisions were being made. We spoke mm. for the report to a number of people who were involved with SAGE and the decisions around lockdown. I mean, and they used words like crazy and intense and, and cognitive barrier to describe the atmosphere at that time. And I think in hindsight, um, and a lot of this is hindsight, you can be point out the flaws in the decision um, while also having some sympathy for the, the conditions in which they were made. Well, we'll have to come back to that sympathy or otherwise in, in, in the future. Absolutely fascinating and um, and lots and lots to talk about there, uh, luckily, because it's going to go on and on. But that is the, going to be the end of this week's Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Kath Haddon, Sarah Nixon, and a big thanks too to Chris Wilkins for joining us. Great to talk to you all today. And thank you, uh, all of you listening at home. If you want to hear more of our discussions, please check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review. We're more than happy to take responsibility and be held accountable for our work. You can find all of our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. The summer's over, more or less. Parliament's back. We're back at least a few days a week in our building. And this government is keeping us busy. See you next week.